But we should be careful always, brothers, to pay attention to how things develop and what nuances are being made as we progress through the book. This is the primary benefit of the preaching of the Word of God is that we are able to go through uh, through an expository way to expose the text so we might catch the nuance. So with all this said, brothers, we are in Ezekiel chapter 6. We will read the whole chapter. Um, Once we have read the chapter, we will pray. So Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills and to the ravines and to the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. Your altar shall become desolate and your incense altar shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste and the high places ruined. So that your altars will be waste and ruined. Your idols broken and destroyed. Your incense altars cut down and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations some of you escape the sword, and when you are scattered throughout the countries, then those of you who uh, who are uh, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword. And he who is left and is uh, preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them. And you shall know that I am the Lord, where their slay lie among their idols around their altars, and on every high hill, and on the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under, under every leafy oak, wherever they offer pleasing aroma, aroma to all their idols. And I will stretch out my hand against them and make them desolate and waste in all their dwelling places from the wilderness to Riblah. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, the words that we have just read alone should make us tremble before your might and before your judgment. Lord, help my brothers and myself to hear the words of this message that you have prepared, that you have sown forth first in your word, and as through faithful preaching, not through the means of uh, this wicked servant that you have chosen, but through the faithful means of preaching of the word of God, that you open my lips to speak true things. And that these things would, that these truths would indeed impact our hearts. And that we would respond as we are to see tonight in repentance, in humility, and ultimately in faith. 
Lord, help us now as we endeavor through this chapter, this difficult chapter. We ask this in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen. As we come to chapter 6, we are now in a distinct section from the Synax that we saw the past two weeks. Following the Synax, remember those Synax are those theatrical performances that the prophet would use to communicate a rough message, a tough message. Following on from that, Ezekiel will now be directly communicating what is going to take place in Jerusalem and Israel. In chapter 6, this section is what biblical scholars call an oracle. An oracle is a judgment pronounced by a prophet on behalf of Yahweh. Oracles are a fairly simple and standard piece of prophetic literatures. Uh, prophetic literature. And oracles almost act as a letter from a lawyer's office that threaten legal penalties against an offending party. In the case of chapter 6, Ezekiel is the lawyer on behalf of Yahweh. The offending party is Israel. The law Israel broke is idolatry. And the penalty is the covenant curses found in Leviticus 26 that we saw the past weeks. Specifically, death by enemy sword, pestilence, famine, and violent exile. For tonight, I want us to see how God's, excuse me, how Ezekiel's oracle against Israel is ultimately about the renewal of the land for worship. This is key, brothers. The oracle against Israel is ultimately about the renewal of the land for worship. You see, brothers, the land of Canaan was not merely given to Israel so that they could flourish as a nation state. No. As we saw last week, the people of Israel were to be worshipers of God. And God gave the Israelites this land so that they might worship Him and be the light to the surrounding nations. Israel's worship of Yahweh was to bring the nations to worship God for themselves. But as we saw last week, the Israelites failed to worship God and failed to be that light to the nations. The gift of the land was not used for the worship of God, for the worship of Yahweh. Rather, it was used for the false worship of false idols. And so this oracle will act to cleanse or to wipe out the effects of Israel's idolatry in the land of Canaan. In chapter 6, we need to see, we need to see that God brings His judgment because Israel failed to worship Yahweh in the land. God is going to renew the land so that His worship will be renewed. So with all this said, with this introduction said, uh, we have two main points for tonight. Uh, the first one, the renewal of the land. And there will be two subpoints, and I'll get to that then. So the first, sub, uh, first major point, the renewal of the land. And the second, the renewal of the worshiper. So first, the renewal of the land. Uh, and again, as I said, we'll have two subpoints for taking notes, but uh, we'll work our way there. To repeat, God is going to renew the land for His worship as He originally intended it be used. As we've seen in our introduction in previous chapters, there was great idolatry in the midst of Israel. At the beginning of Israel's conquest of Canaan, they were directly commanded by God and Moses to destroy the various idols that peppered the land of Canaan. And these idols were typically located along Canaan's mountainous region. However, Israel failed to destroy all of the vestiges of false Canaanite worship from the land. Once the Israelite dynasty began with Saul, false worship was still alive and well. 
Even after David's supposedly godly line, his godly reign, idolatry still remained in the land. Idolatry was still present among God's people, even the godly ones. In fact, Solomon, David's son, was the main progenitor of false worship in the land. Mary and I have been reading through the book of Kings for our morning worship. And as we go through, it's shocking. It's shocking how many times I have to read and explain that the Israelites keep going back and back and back again to idolatry. But that's one of the main themes of Kings. Israel's constant idolatry and religious pollution that will ultimately bring God's judgment. So brothers, idolatry was rampant in Israel. And God was yet again confronting the Israelites about it. In verses 1-3 to of our passage tonight, God tells Ezekiel to address the mountains of Israel. It says in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel, and prophesy against them, and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of, hear the, word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills and to the ravines and the valleys. There's a few things that we can note here. First, Ezekiel is thousands of miles away in Babylon. So there's no way that Ezekiel could actually see the mountain range that God is directing him to. The exiled Israelites that Ezekiel was preaching to would have understood what Ezekiel was doing. He was facing the mountains. If any of you have a a, a Muslim friend uh, or those who uh, worship uh, Allah, uh, the false god, uh, he, he, they, they will often face the direction of uh, the place of worship in, in that land. And this will be almost a similar act that Ezekiel is taking up, but he's now addressing the mountains of Israel. Ezekiel also would have explained who he was prophesying against, the mountains that house the idols. Right? Remember, the idols were amongst, they were scattered throughout the land. Second, by referencing mountains meaning plural, plural mountains, we are understand that he's not just speaking to the people in Jerusalem. This is now uh, the far larger indictment against the entire nation of Israel. Remember, the Sinaites were particularly to Jerusalem, but now has been expanded out to the mountains of Israel, to the entire nation, to the land. Throughout northern and southern Israel, there were many mountains and hills that housed the idols that angered the Lord. So God's scope of judgment was not specific like it was in chapter 4 and 5. It's not just Jerusalem in his sights. It's all the land, the cities, and the people. So with this in mind, think about this, brothers. Jerusalem was the focus of chapters 4 and 5. And I have this question for you. What hill or mountain was associated with Jerusalem? What hill or mountain was associated with Jerusalem? Go ahead and answer that. What, what hill was associated with the city of Jerusalem? The Temple Mount. All right, what was that mountain? Zion. Very good. It was Zion. And this was the, the people uh, that was in view with Jerusalem. So in chapters 4 and 5, God dealt with sin and the idolatry of Zion. That is Jerusalem. But now... As we are to see, he is now expanding his wrath outward from Zion, from Jerusalem. And as we'll see later in Ezekiel, God's wrath will continue even into the foreign nations. 
by destroying the false worship in the sanctuary at Zion and the rest of Israel's idols in their mountaintops, what we are to see is that God is cleaning house. He's getting rid of the false worship in the land. But he does this through terrible, terrible judgment. God's means of renewing the land from false worship is through the covenant curses of death and destruction. This brings me to the first sub-point. The, re- the means of renewal. Remember, our first point was the renewal of the land for worship. But what is the means of renewal? The means of renewal for the land is death and destruction. Death and destruction is the means of renewal. In verses 4 to 7, we see what God is going to do to the mountains. Please read with me, brothers. Verses 4 to 7. Your altars shall become desolate, and your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain, uh, your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. With these repeated references to incense altars and to the various altars that are used, these are technical terms, and these are again referenced in Leviticus 26. Again, I'm going to be repeating that chapter over and over again because Ezekiel does so. He is constantly referring to the Leviticus code, particularly the curses. So have that in mind. In these verses, brothers, we see that God must destroy in order to renew and cleanse the land from idolatry. In the ancient mindset, false worship required three basic things. It required a people, a location, and a cultic system of some kind. First, we see references to altars, incense altars, and idols. Typically, in idol worship, there would be a figurine of stone or wood that was attended by an altar used for sacrifices and burning incense. Basically, the idea was that the idol or the figurine symbolizing the deity could receive the sacrifice and would appease the deity, and the deity would respond in blessing the people. These blessings... Blessings would include fertility of the womb, greater crop yields, or protection from neighboring enemies. So by erecting idols, Israel was ultimately seeking the blessings of life in the Canaan. They were seeking blessed life in the land of Canaan. But this is important. They were seeking that blessing without Yahweh. They were seeking the blessed life of, Yah- uh, blessed life of the land of Canaan without Yahweh. Brothers, I hope that we can see why idolatry is so heinous before our God. By erecting idols, the Israelites were denying God's right to be worshipped alone for who He is. Idolatry is the means of having the blessing of God without having God Himself. As any true worshiper then and now would know and would testify, God is Himself the blessing. And the blessing in the land, whether fertility, greater crop yields, all these mere physical blessings, these physical, these blessings in the land, they were just merely reminders 
of the greater spiritual blessing of union and faith in God. God, brothers, God is the fount of all blessed life. And the physical blessings in the land were merely to point Israel back to that reality. God is the one who provides the fruit. He is the one who is fruitful. He is the uh, bounteous life in himself. I'll have more to say in this in a moment. But what we can see is that God destroys these cultic systems with its altars and its idols so that he alone would receive worship and that the blessings would only point to him and to him alone. That is the purpose why these cultic systems are to be destroyed. Second, by God addressing the mountains and ravines in verses 1 to 3, we know the general location of false worship. But from these verses we are to see, uh, but from the verses that we have just seen, that the mountains and ravines were places of developed idolatry. In verse 6, we see reference to cities and high places, which were strongholds of some kind. So the places of worship were not small, isolated locations. The places of worship were most likely major villages with major and much financial resources backing them. Typically, brothers, I don't know about you, when I think of false worship, my mind tends to think of druid-like activity out in the woods somewhere. I can't help but think of the snake handlers out in the Tennessee mountains, right? These groups or cults tend to be small, rural, and obscure people out in the middle of nowhere. But for the case tonight, that's not true for them. For ancient Israel, these places were much closer to major metropolitan areas. As we see in verse 6, in order to destroy the cultic system, God has to destroy the location the cities, the major cities, and the roots associated with false idols. Notice in verse 6 that it says, and I'm going to uh, go over a few things, the cities shall be waste, hear this, so that the cities will be waste, wasted, so that your altars will be waste. By decimating the city and its resources, the land would be cleansed from the houses of false worship and the cultic systems that were erected there. Third, God also cleanses the land from false worshipers. Since God is the fount of all life, to remove yourself from His worship and communion must mean death. And that is what we see in verses 4-7. to seven. Dead bodies will be piled before the altar before the idols of death and false worship. And the bones of false worshipers will be scattered across their altars. After this horror takes place, we see the result of those, of those who would see these things in verse 7. And the slain shall fall in your midst. And remember, who is Ezekiel speaking to? He's speaking to the exiles. He's saying this, And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. The people who, who would be spared by God would know that it was the Lord because He is telling them now. By seeing or hearing of this death and destruction, they, the Israelites, the exiled Israelites, would know that God had vindicated His holiness against His rebellious people. The people would know that it wasn't Baal who had the last word. No, no. 
It was the true covenant Lord of Israel who justly enacted his curses against his covenant people. The people would know it was Yahweh, their covenant Lord, that they had forsaken and that he was wiping the land clean for worship. With all these elements in place, the place of worship, the cultic system destroyed, and idol worshipers killed, false worship would be taken from the root and plucked from the land. But in verses 11 to 14, we're going to skip over verses 8 to 10. In verses 11 to 14, we see one more element of how God will curse Israel. In order to renew the land for worship, God must renew the totality of the nation. And this brings us to our second sub-point, the extent of the renewal of the land. The extent of the renewal of the land. Again, the means of renewing the land was through death and destruction. It was by decimating idol worshipers and their sites of worship. But there remained a remnant, but if there remained a remnant of idolatrous rebels or vestiges of idol worship, then the people would quickly fall back into the same practices that aroused God's wrath in the first place. And that's what we see in verses 11 through 14. These verses summarize much of what we've seen in chapters 4 and 5. And they are similar in content to what we've seen so far tonight. For example, in verse 11, God commands Ezekiel to shout and wail in a violent manner, the clamping and the stopping of the foot. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stop your foot. But notice why Ezekiel, why Ezekiel was in such great anguish. Ezekiel was commanded to say this. This is why he was in such anguish. Alas, uh, Ezekiel was commanded to say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. When speaking to the exiles, Ezekiel was to declare that the nation of Israel was going to be destroyed because of their evil abominations. Evil abominations. Last week, we noted that that term abominations was going to be uh, was a, a fill-in. It was a term. It was a fill-in term for the various idolatrous practices of the nation. And because of these idolatrous practices, these abominations, the covenant curses of Leviticus 26 would come upon Israel. Again, we see the reference to the sword, the famine, and pestilence in verse 11. In verse 12, God says that these three curses will end in death of the worshiper. He who is far off shall die in pestilence. And he who is near shall fall by the sword. And he who is left and is preserved shall die of famine. Thus, I will spend my fury upon them. Verse 13. We see a repeat of why God is going to bring this upon Israel. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. When their slain lie among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, wherever they offer pleasing aroma to all their idols. Through this judgment that brings death to idolaters and the ruin of false worship, the remnants of the exiles 
would know that God is indeed God. Through death and destruction and the totality of it, they would know, thus says the Lord. They would know that his wrath has been spent. They would know who they have sinned against. But in verse 14, we see the extent of God's destruction and death. Please read with me, brothers. Verse 14, and I will stretch out my hand, stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste in all their dwelling places from the wilderness to Riblah. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Again, God is going to destroy, but the extent is total. The reference to the wilderness is the southern extremity of what would be considered Israelite territory. And Riblah is the northern extremity. Technically, it wasn't even Israelite territory. It would be similar to God judging the United States and saying that from Tijuana to Quebec, there would be the wrath and the destruction and the death for idolatry. Brothers, every nook and cranny, from every mountaintop or ravine, idolatry would be rooted out of God's land. No more false worship would reign in Israel. No more idolaters would revel in their sin and in their delusion. No more would God allow His glory to be shunned because of a piece of wood and stone. God's glory was going to be magnified in the land of Canaan. The land's purpose would be realized, brothers. God's glory would be magnified in that land. But rather than the worship, rather than worship the glory of God in the land, Israel would see God's glory and it would be again their horror. Brothers, if there is one phrase that you must remember from this study, if there is one quote that you remember from the study in the book of Ezekiel, it is this. God loves His glory. God loves His worship. And if Israel was going to use the land for that purpose, if, it, if Israel was not going to use the land for that purpose, to worship God, to love God, to glorify God, if they were not going to do that, then God's glory would be manifested in a different way. God's glory through justice against sin and idolatry would be manifested against His rebellious people. As the text says, Israel indeed would know that Yahweh is God and that His glory alone is to be worshipped. So much so that He's willing to slay men for it. Brothers, it may seem with all this doom and gloom, with all this death and destruction, it may seem from unbelieving eyes that God is a God of death. Some see this terrifying reality and they wonder how we could ever, we as Christians, as believers, would ever worship a God that seems to delight in death. But these skeptics always seem to fail to understand this key truth about humanity, brothers. Israel, as fallen and rebellious sinners, despise God and His glory. Rather than choosing blessed life and fellowship with Yahweh, Israel chose sin. We read this morning in Isaiah 59, and in verse 2, 
we read this. Your, meaning Israel's iniquities, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. It's on Israel. It's on them. It's on their sin. Brothers, Israel's sin separated the fellowship that God had with Israel. That severance is not on God's part. It is on the sinner and the idolater. Brothers, God is not a God of death. He is the complete opposite. Our God is the God of life. By the sinner's continued rebellion, and this is key, brothers, they choose, they choose death by forsaking to choose Yahweh. As I said before, brothers, you cannot have life without God. He is life. It is who He is. The breath in our lungs, brothers, is because of God's sovereign providence upon our life. And any spiritual life that we possess is because of His fellowshipping with us in Christ through the Spirit. It is the God of life who gives us the blessing of both physical and spiritual life. And if we refuse Him, and if we refuse to worship His glory, we should not be surprised that death is the penalty or the result of this great injustice. Death is the appropriate response of God to those who refuse Him. To refuse God must mean that you accept death, no matter how you may conceive of life. Quite literally, brothers, you cannot have life without Yahweh. This is such an important point as we understand our eschatology, brothers. At the end of the age, when God establishes the new heavens and the new earth, there will be an event called the second death. The cursing and judgments that we have read tonight actually point to this coming judgment of the second death. Just as God will cleanse the land of Canaan, God will cleanse His entire creation from false worship and idolaters. In the book of Revelation, we, we should see eternal death and destruction. We should see death and destruction as the act of God cleansing idolaters from His cosmos, from His world. In Revelation 21 verse 8, we see idolaters and the wicked cast into hell. We read this in verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Because this is apocalyptic language, we don't exactly know what the lake that burns with fire and sulfur looks like. But we do know this. The imagery of water, the lake, and the imagery of fire and sulfur are connected thematically to the covenant curses of the Old Covenant. And simply put, the author of Revelation is just picking up these themes to make his point about this second death. Bodies of water are associated with death in the ancient mindset, and fire is associated with destruction. To summarize in simple terms, the imagery of the lake of fire is to encapsulate what being eternally cursed look like. 
to by eternally judging idolaters and sinners, God sanctifies, brothers, his cosmos for his worship. The second death, hell itself, is for the purpose that we might be unhinged from idolaters. The new heavens and the new earth are for God's glory through his saints. And God will and must separate those who refuse his worship and they will get what they deserve. They will get what they want. If they do not want the God of life, if they do not want Yahweh, they will have death. Again, unbelievers doubt this reality of judgment. And some new Christians can't wrap their heads around that God, the loving God of the Bible, would eternally curse multitudes upon multitudes of people. But this truth is absolutely consistent with what God has revealed throughout His Word. Those who refuse God accept death. They must accept death as their alternative. By God judging them eternally in hell, God is simply giving the sinner exactly what He wants. The sinner wants death, destruction, and curse. Brothers, for those listening tonight, for you children listening tonight, if you have not turned from your sins and have been united to Christ by faith, you stand in the same fate as these rebellious sinners, as those who will be judged in the second death. Unless you turn from seeking life or joy in false idols, your pursuit will end only in death. Brothers, as the Christian tradition teaches us so poignantly, you become what you worship. If worship, if you worship dead and vain pursuits, as the Israelites did, as they pursued dead idols, you will become just like them. If you die in your idolatry, you will die as one who forsakes life, and you will know death eternally. Friends, for those who do not know of Christ, for those who do not know of the worship of the triune God of Scripture, repent from your idolatry and live. If the reality, if the reality of your pursuit of death, if this reality of the pursuit of death makes you tremble, then flee. Flee from those dead idols and come to the living God. He is life. And he provides it abundantly. Moving on, brothers. This message of judgment is given to us so that we might turn from idolatry. The curse and judgment of God is to bring us to our knees in humility and repentance. If we want to be spared from this horror and judgment, we must be humbled worshipers of God. And it, as it is with us, so it was with Israel. This brings us to our second main point for this evening. The renewal of the worshiper. The renewal of the worshiper. In our first point, we saw that God promised that he would renew the land from false worship. But it wasn't enough that God would cleanse the land from sin and idolaters. The land of Canaan had a purpose. And that purpose was for worshipers to praise Yahweh. Last week, we saw that God's purpose is not to completely destroy the 
people of Israel. Not to completely cut them off. He was going to spare an exiled remnant from death. Our passage repeats this same promise of relenting against total annihilation. In Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 8 to 10, we read these words. And after, in, brothers, come back to the text with me. In light of that message of judgment, hear these words and hear the refreshment that the Israelites would have heard in these words. Chapter 6, verse 8. Yet I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations some of you who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have broken, how have I have been broken over their whoring heart that, was, that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. And they will know that I am Yahweh. I have not said in vain that, that I would do this evil to them. The language of this text seems harsh and earthy, but it's profound. In verse 9, the Israelites would see all that was taking place as they were in foreign lands, and they would remember Yahweh. The language employed in verse 9, nine uh, that, that tough language that we heard, it's similar to the language used about marital infidelity in the Bible. By going after other gods, false idols, Israel is portrayed as a wife who goes after another man. Verse 9 is a long string of relative clauses, but we can clean it up by paraphrasing it a bit. And if you would, this is my translation. Israel will remember me. They will remember how I have been broken over their adulterous hearts. Israel will remember me. They will remember how I have been broken over their adulterous hearts. Simply put in these words, God is saying that He is deeply and profoundly hurt by His people's idolatry. He is offended by this. He's betrayed. God in this section is using language to portray Him as the jilted husband in this scenario. And by being separated through exile, the Israelites will realize how grotesque and sinful their idolatry was. The exiles would experience guilt. As the text says, they would be loathsome in their own sight for their idolatrous practice, for their abominations. The Israelites would be humbled, not only by their punishment, but by the sober realization of how, pro how profoundly wicked, evil, perverse their sin was before Yahweh. In verse 10, God says something profoundly important. And we must catch this, brothers. And this is where we can take hope. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Let me repeat that again in verse 10. I, Yahweh speaking, I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. The purpose of God's curse is not to just delight himself in destruction of the ungodly. 
is not merely that. We are to see that God uses the exile and the covenant curses to bring the people of Israel from their spiritual stupor. For those that God had chosen to preserve in His remnant, the exile would become a means of discipline for the worshiper, for the worshipers of Yahweh, and for them to be renewed. In fact, Leviticus 26, verses 4 to 45, in that text, after the curses have been enacted upon Israel for their infidelity, for their religious idolatry, God promised that He would still restore His repentant people and that He would remember the covenant made with the patriarchs. So with this in mind, I believe Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 8 to 10, is a reference to this section of Leviticus. Indeed, the chosen remnant would be afflicted for their sin, but God would not spurn them, as Leviticus says, forever. And by remembering His covenant with the patriarchs, God would reconfirm to the exiles that He was the God of blessing and life. By reconfirming His promises to Israel, the exiles had every reason to worship Yahweh as humbled yet redeemed sinners. Yes, Israel would be afflicted for their sin. They would suffer. But their affliction would turn them to the living God and away from those false dead idols. Brothers, this theme of renewed exiles, of the renewed exiles, is just the is just beginning to develop in the book of Ezekiel. I want us to catch this little nuance here because this will become more and more profound as we go through the book of Ezekiel. This golden strand, this scarlet thread that we see, as we say in Christian theology, this this scarlet thread of God's redemptive story, we are just beginning to see it. Even in the midst of this troubling, of this difficult, and of this humbling text, we can still see God's grace. We see God's purposes, even in judgment. This is profoundly important, brothers, for a variety of reasons. But it's profoundly important for our hearts that we know that God is not some mere apathetic God of death, but that He indeed will use death and destruction to bring about fruition in our lives. As we saw the past two weeks, God brings salvation through destruction. He brings salvation through destruction, through judgment. The most prime example of that found in Scripture is Jesus Christ Himself. He was slain upon that altar. He was crucified in our place. He took on the covenant curses in our place. But what was that purpose for? Was it just to have God delight in the death of His Son? No. It was for the purpose that God would be glorified through the presentation of His Son being afflicted in our place so that we might have life. And we have life, and that purpose of that spiritual life is worship. Brothers, this theme is so rich, and we will see it progress throughout the book. And we need to be reminded of this as we go through Ezekiel because these are hard passages ahead. Brothers, we will develop this point later on, but we can note this tonight. God disciplines His children so that we might worship. As Christ says in Revelation 3.19, Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, brothers, that's you. 
Those whom I love. These are Christ's words to you, brothers and sisters. Those whom I love. My beloved. I reprove and discipline. So that. So then. Be, je- uh, be zealous and repent. Hear that again. Those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. And so he gives us a command because of that great truth. So be zealous and repent. Brothers, there may be sin in your life that you are under discipline for right now. There may be something lacking in your holiness. So Christ may be pruning you in order that you may grow. Discipline, even in severe trials, are ultimately an expression of Christ's love for you. Notice that Christ does not say that after being reproved that we should be gloomy and repent. No, that's not what he says in Revelation 3.19. He says this, be zealous and repent. God's discipline is love. God wants us to know that he loves us even to the point of breaking us from our sin. God and his love, brothers, and this is so important, God's love for His own glory and even for His love for you. For you, brothers and sisters. He disciplines us. And He disciplines His flock. God's love for His disciples, is, uh, loves for us in dis, uh, discipline, is so that we would be like the exiles in Ezekiel chapter 6. We are to see our brothers. Uh, we are to see our sin to come to to despise it all the more so that we might be zealous for God and repent. Brothers, when we sin, we we crucify underfoot the blood of Christ. It is that we trample underfoot the blood of Christ. And this is sin. We treat Christ as that jilted husband every time we go away from Him. But brothers, for those who have particularly weak consciences, know that even when you are disciplined by the love of Christ, that it is indeed love. He loves you so much that He's willing to discipline you, that He's able to deal with you, that He wants to deal with you. God, again, brothers, does not call us to repent back into some apathetic relationship with Him. He didn't want his people to go back to the same covenant as before, as we'll see later down the road. He did not want Israel to go back into the same practices and idolatry that would eventually come from an apathetic relationship with Yahweh. No! Our God, brothers, our God has called us to a far better relationship, a a far better fellowship. God's call and discipline is that we might be all the more zealous for Him and His glory. So then, brothers, repent from your idolatry and sin, whatever that may be, but turn to God, not with apathy, not with disdain, not with drooping knuckles, not with weak knees, but turn to God with all the more joy and desire to see His glory made known. Brothers, He is going to cleanse this land for His worship. And He wants us to be a part of that. He wants us to worship Him. Brothers, let us do that. I'll close with these words. We no longer live in the land of Canaan, brothers. 
but we do worship in spirit and truth as those united to Christ Jesus. We may not worship at the temple in Jerusalem, but as those who have Christ as their mediator, God accepts our worship in utter delight. He loves our worship because it's done in Christ Jesus. So then, brothers, receive these words from the author of Hebrews. But you, O Christian, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and, and, and to this uh, sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Brothers, as those who worship Yahweh together and united in Christ through His Spirit. Brothers, we do not worship on a mountaintop somewhere in ancient Palestine, but we worship in the heavenly Jerusalem. He receives His heavenly worship there. And we, with all the saints together, are praising the name of Christ now for His great work for us on Calvary and His continued work throughout this world as He displays His glory throughout the nations. Lord, Father, thank You for this reality. And brothers... That is the reality in which we partake in tonight. Even when it's slow, even when it's small, we worship the triune God together, and He accepts that in glory. That's the God that we worship. That's the God who's renewing this world. And that's the God that we have been renewed as worshipers to worship in this reality. Brothers, as we come before Christ now, know that He accepts your worship and that he delights in it. Brothers, let us pray. Father, we thank you that indeed you are a God who delights in our worship because you delight in your Son. We thank you that you have the immense patience to send to us your Son for him to die upon that cross for us, a display of your love and justice, and that we might be partakers of that sacrifice for us, and that we might indeed be able to worship you in spirit and in truth as those as forgiven saints, as those who once used to chase after false gods and false idols. Lord, you have drawn us in, that you have redeemed us so that we might worship you, not in some land here, not in some mountain range across this world, but Lord, you have called us to worship wherever the preaching of the word of God is being set forth. Lord, help us to see this wondrous reality that we indeed worship you in the heavenly Zion, in the heavenly Jerusalem, and Lord, that you receive that worship in pure and utter delight. And Lord, you're expanding your work now that your entire cosmos might sing your name, singing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Lord, may that be our vision as a church, the worship of the saints through the proclamation of the gospel. And we ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen.